0: Good morning everyone Good morning um okay all right good morning everyone Good morning how are you doing so uh I'm just testing this out really I don't have any internet. I moved and for some reason the internet that was installed has dropped and I'm waiting for i'm waiting for repair of um, a repair worker to come and fix the situation tonight. I'm actually going to have the Duran on if everything goes well to talk about the Ukraine situation, to talk about all the dizzying developments, some of which I will get into here. Uh Yeah, that's, that's what we're going to talk about today in preparation for what I hope will be a 9 PM Eastern time on the left lens discussion with the Duran about all the latest developments and outcomes of the U.S.'s proxy war against Russia being played out in Ukraine. I wanted to first start out, I'm sending in the chat the link to Vladimir Putin's speech given yesterday at the celebration of the accession of the four Donbass territories, uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, Uh, Kerasan and uh, Zaporozhye, and uh, all of which in the referendum that took place uh, over the past week voted to join Russia over 95% I think most of those who voted uh, voted to join to the tune of I think it was close to 99% each territory each locality so at the accession uh, at the celebration of the accession of these territories, uh, Vladimir Putin gave this speech, which a lot of people are talking about. And I just want to uh, put a disclaimer out there: there are a few things in this speech that I don't agree with. I don't think that they are fundamental. I don't think that they are necessarily a principal issue here. I think that uh, there are a few things. One, you know, I when it comes to I, I don't understand. Why Vladimir Putin uh, would bring up the question of, let's say, he had a a really, what I think to be a strange reference to having two, three, four parents in the household uh, and some other comments that seem to be directed at LGBTQ people. For me, I didn't think that was necessary. I would understand if he came at it from the perspective of Western interference in Russia and that those questions are really for people in Russia to decide. decide. But I don't get the political statement. It's obvious obvious that he's trying to appeal to a wide range of people. Uh, But of course, those don't reflect my personal views. And then there was another comment he made, a few comments he made about the Soviet Union one of which was directed at the Soviet Union. He he made a comparison almost stating that the breakup of the Soviet Union was akin to the beginning of the Soviet Union, where there were so-called party elites deciding what the fate of the masses of people were to be. And what he was referring to was the the national question in the Soviet Union and how the Soviet Union resolved that by giving uh, autonomy and creating... Uh, these republics that were both within the Soviet Union as well as uh, semi-autonomous in their own right. And, and so I, I don't really agree with the disparaging comparison there. I would say that uh, the vast the betrayal of, of the people in the Soviet Union uh, when the, what was left of the CP uh, uh, of the Soviet Union broke up Without even respecting the referendum that had that had yet to occur, which would have and did show that most people wanted the Soviet Union to remain intact, i don't think that could be compared to the Soviet union's attempt in its birth to address what was a pretty important issue, which was that russia well not just Russia but the greater mass that was the Soviet Union was very ethnically diverse. And where there was, as Lenin called, a prison house of nations, where various nationalities were treated incredibly differently um, and and oppressed much more severely um, in certain parts of what became the Soviet Union than in others. So that's just a disclaimer. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I, I don't agree. You know, there are some people trying to come at me saying, oh, well, you agree with what Putin said about X, Y? No. Uh, Vladimir Putin and I don't share all the same politics. However, I do find Putin to be one of the most important, if not uh, the top uh, five important political leaders in this moment in history. And I do believe Vladimir Putin is a big part of why Russia is making history and why history is being made in Ukraine right now, even if I do not agree with all of his uh, individual politics and what they reflect, which I think they reflect the state of Russian politics, which is um, a political project that does have um, a whole lot of contradictions but I think the principal one is that Russia is really in a in a, in a war in a war not of its own making but a war to uh, protect sovereignty from the U.S.'s attempt to apply the Wolfowitz Doctrine and break up Russia and to ultimately destroy Russia as part of, and Vladimir Putin said this in his speech, and I think this is totally correct, as part of a new strategy by the United States to maintain its hegemony in a period of decline where a kind of a World War III scenario with Russia and, of course, China are seen, and this is why the new Cold War is so important to talk about are seen as the primary targets that are necessary to destroy in order to achieve this. When World War I and World War II had uh, aims that are not so dissimilar, but really were about how to divide the world, how to ensure imperialism's growth and stability, now it's about maintaining that hegemony that was taken That was really taken over uh, the past century in order to um, patch up holes, as Putin also said in his speech. So this speech was historic. I mean, it was historic in so many ways. History is being made right now in Ukraine. Ukraine has just lost 20 plus percent of its entire national territory Something uh, that's a very new phenomenon. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And so it is a very uh, young country, so to speak. Very young. We're talking about 21 years. What am I saying? 21 years. uh, 31 years old. And now it is a lot smaller. And so, so many things have happened in the past week alone. I mean, if we go a little bit further than a week... Russia declared a special partial mobilization, which <laughs> uh, was, was definitely an escalation. Uh, and it was an escalation in preparation for what was about to happen, which was the referendums, as well as all of the talk about nuclear war. Because uh, uh, Dmitry Medvedev over at the uh, uh, Russia National Security Council Uh, And also he's been he's been he's been the president of Russia before he and and others, Dmitry Peskov, the spokesperson for Russia's government, have all said that nuclear weapons, you know, it it will if it's necessary. I mean, it's part of the arsenal that Russia has and. The referendum is very incredibly important. These referendums are incredibly important because with the accession of these four Donbass territories, what this really means is that Russia's border has expanded and uh, any kind of interference militarily from Ukraine and its NATO-backed uh, uh, arsenal will be seen as an act of war on Russia now, directly. So. That is, that's important to, I think, um, you know, I I think to understand here is that when I talk about history being made, it really is about the landscape of geopolitics have, have already rapidly changed. And this isn't even to get into. So you have the partial mobilization in preparation for what is the defense of now Russia Right. Because this is no longer going to be just a special military operation if Ukraine and NATO decide to wage war in the Donbass, in these Donbass territories. It's no longer the case. All this nuclear war talk, despite the fact that Russia is very clear in its nuclear doctrine released in 2020, which says that Russia will only use its nuclear arsenal if it feels its national Uh, Sovereignty is under attack, uh, and if it feels like it's about to be attacked with nuclear weapons itself. So, really, self defense. But nonetheless, there's been all sorts of talk about a potential nuclear conflict uh, by the West trying to scaremonger folks into believing this, and also creating the conditions where Russia and, of course, these Donbass territories, these localities, these republics felt that it was necessary to join the Russian Federation. And uh, uh, this would not have even occurred, right? This was not, not would not have a, needed to occur if the Minsk Accords were respected and if the sovereignty of the Russian-speaking population in this part of Ukraine was respected. But it, it never was, and it won't be. So that's why you have the situation uh, that we have right now. So... This is even get to the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage, right? Both pipelines are now uh, destroyed, uh, one and two. Uh, it was an act of sabotage. This was reported uh, last Monday, so uh, a little under a week ago. And it, it's being blamed on Russia, of course, by the West, by NATO. But it's quite obvious that Russia would not destroy its own pipeline, one of its principal s- uh, supply routes to Europe, especially at a time when Vladimir Putin in Samarkand uh, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit said that he was ready to, uh, he was ready to lift uh, or he was ready to send energy as soon as Germany lifted its sanctions. So, and as soon as the EU lifted its sanctions, that he was ready and Russia was ready to begin fulfilling its contractual obligations in full. So this sabotage of Nord Stream 1 and 2 is incredibly important because, I mean, of course, there's all the paper trail from Biden's comments to the fact that NATO was holding drills there around that area in July um, in the Baltics. The fact that you know, there's a paper trail likely leading to some kind of NATO or NATO uh, aligned or NATO adjacent force committing this uh, heinous act, which is going to not just hurt Russia, which it will hurt Russia. Russia has acknowledged that its economy will likely contract in the next year about 2% uh, because of this. It's going to hurt Europe even more. And and what the United States is doing, this is the history that's also being made in Ukraine, is that Europe, believe it or not, Europe will always maintain its identity as a colonial force, as an imperialist force. A uh, history cannot be unwritten. And uh, surely it is participating in all of these imperialist ventures, both in Ukraine and uh, around the world. But at the same time, it is going through its own almost neo-colonial process where the United States is attempting to completely loot and plunder and Vladimir Putin made this clear in his speech as well which you should all read that this is the what's going on that Europe is becoming is being targeted for plunder for looting and the United States is facilitating what is likely to be a massive deindustrialization of of Europe and so I mean, that's the situation. This is the history that's being made right now. I, I mean, it, it It was dizzying. I was moving during this time, and it was tough not to be able to do, jump on here, not to be able to do more streams. Um, I have a lot coming up, uh, not just the Duran, but Scott Ritter on October 4th. Um, I'm also going to be talking about Iran on October 7th, I believe, with Mohammed Morandi, but... Uh, I, I need to still confirm that. So a lot coming up on the channel, but yeah, it was, the, the the developments around Ukraine have been dizzying. But it's all it all fits squarely within this new Cold War agenda from the United States, and and the blowback to this new Cold War agenda is is quite stark, is quite clear. Not only has Russia firmed up its position and despite all the talks about Russia being weak, Russia being in a in a bad position, Russia losing this uh, war, just just the last week alone shows that no, the desperation and uh, the lack of competence does not sit on the Russia's side. Not to mention that all of this is accelerating uh, what is inevitable, which is that Russia will continue to pursue stronger relations with countries in the global South. Vladimir Putin made it quite clear in his speech that this was the priority. That China, Iran, and uh, nations in Africa, Latin America, Asia—this th- is where Russia is going to look more and more now that it's a hundred percent clear that there is no interest in peace, negotiated settlement, cooperation, or anything of that sort. Really, the United States is continuing down a path of a World War III confrontation. And now the lines of demarcation are drawn even more uh, deeply, where such a scenario could very well occur. And these, the referendums that have just happened... And, and now the accession of these four Donbass uh, territories into Russia is, is certainly indication that the only possible scenario where confrontation between Russia and NATO does not occur is one where there is some kind of, if not peace talks, right, if not peace talks, then some kind of uh, a proxy war armistice, so to speak in the sense that if NATO doesn't want to talk peace, then maybe NATO should at the very least stop what it's doing because we've, we've seen or, or pause what it's doing, right? Because we've seen even Ukraine yesterday try to fast-track itself into NATO. And what did the United States do? Well, they did what I think is probably the only uh, possible scenario where a confrontation, a military confrontation with Russia doesn't occur, a NATO military confrontation with Russia doesn't occur, is where uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, well, we'll we'll pick that up at another time. Uh, I, I think we need to take this up at another time. So that that, I think, I mean, that just shows the weakness because you have this imperialist agenda that wants to dismember Russia, but you have... This uh, mutually assured destruction in that sense, right, if you kill me uh, i 'm going to kill you, kind of thing like that that right this is Russia, this is not Iraq two thousand and three um, Russia is not a country that cannot defend itself from the might the military might of imperialism it 's just not the case, so this is a predicament uh, that imperialism finds itself in, but but really we find ourselves in because of the consequences of imperialism right so another time so to speak feels like the only path forward for the united states if u.s and nato the eu etc do not want to bring this conflict to an end because they're really the only forces that can do that uh, uh, uh russia can continue to make gains on the battlefield in Ukraine, uh, it already has, but it's quite clear that without NATO ceasing its escalations, that and the Nord Stream two sabotage is probably one of the biggest yet. It's it's quite clear that that's not going to happen, and so history will continue to be made. But it will be made both in very interesting directions for us as a collective humanity, um, but also in very troubling ones as well, and that's the that's the contradiction. So I have a caller. Um, I will let uh, Schnarf in um, for any questions or comments. Um, okay, you are able to speak now. Hey, what's up, Danny? Hi, good to see you again. So I
1: have a general, um, I guess I have a general position that I'd like to state and I'd like to see what your insight is in regards to it. I think one of the problems, and this exists in American media, whether it's left, alternative, whatever it is, is that there's this ultimate scenario of nuclear war that becomes the impact to literally everything that we talk about. And what's really strange is that we've had this threat of imminent threat of nuclear war be on the horizon since the beginning of the Cold War. But the aspect of mutual destruction um, and and the the kind of hell that would be unleashed if nuclear war really was to take place is I think is, is I think a larger deterrent. Than people like to give it credit for. That doesn't stop people from saber rattling, um, you know, proliferating, not signing arms treaties, jumping out of arms treaties, doing a lot of complicated things that would ultimately be more performative. But the actual pressing of that button is not something that I think would happen on purpose. I think nuclear war's ultimate scenario of happening more likely would be an accident. I think that's the, the scenario where we should really be afraid of where something happens where accidentally nuclear weapons are fired, right? And then there's retaliation and then we end end up in nuclear winter and me and you will be dead and all the wealthy people will be in a bunker somewhere, right? I think ultimately that scenario seems to be more likely. But in the media in you know everyone from from like conventional political scientists to you know everyone else we keep bringing up this nuclear war scenario every week like we're getting closer to the edge right and that perpetual impact uh, that perpetual walk up to the edge never seems to happen
0: Hmm. yeah yeah well that's i think that's a good point i think that's a good point um uh oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? Do you have anything?
1: No, I think I think that's one thing, and the other thing that we should look at is this. For, and I agree with you. Like, like the American, the American experiment is based solely on 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 imperialism, right? But we can't like discount the fact that even the Soviet Union was an imperialistic institution in itself as well. It took over Eastern Europe. It plundered and and ravaged what it could because it it itself had had imperialistic motives right and the same can be said of of like all these different other entities that emerge like the iranians for example the iranians are practicing imperialism in iraq clearly they, they've already have their proxies in there they're taking or they're taking over what they can and they're using it as 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 kind of like their backyard it's it's a like a like a maybe an iranian form of 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 intrusion but that's imperialism as itself so it's like the people who we criticize and the people on the other side are both assholes and i think that's that's more of like i guess where we should be as leftists as opposed to people sitting here and making excuses for for any of these totalitarian uh or, or authoritarian figures right whether it's it's china whether it's russia whether it's iran they're all pieces of shit, right like we should really do more to like Identify with the with the class struggle that exists in those places, the people they exploit, than the leaders, and I think that gets lost in the discussion. I think.
0: All right. Well, uh, appreciate your your points, but yeah, I can I can certainly answer them now. Unfortunately, um, I have just received a message that uh, these folks to fix my internet are going to come a little early. So if they do ring the bell, I will have to promptly end this podcast. Hopefully, they won't come in the next seven minutes or so. But I want to I wanna just respond to a few things. One, um, what you brought up in regards to this nuclear threat. Now, I, I do think it is true that, uh, I mean, we could really trace this back all the way to the U.S.-NATO military encirclement of Russia beginning... Uh, well, I shouldn't say beginning, but really escalating uh, circa 2011. Um, same thing around China, right? The NATO encirclement of Russia, mili- the U.S.'s military encirclement, along with the U.K. Ex- and others of China, that that began this process of, of there being really more of a threat. And, of course, you have uh, kind of the doomsday scenarios right the clock uh, 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 the nuclear clock uh, getting closer to midnight but but I do want to say that while the deterrence of nuclear weapons is very much real I mean there's a reason why China wanted to pursue and did pursue nuclear weapons um, beginning in the 1950s and finally being able to build one by the early to mid 1960s There's a reason why the DPRK has pursued uh, nuclear weapons, and and now I believe it has a couple at least uh, ready to go. And it's because uh, when countries are under threat of nuclear war, and the United States has used nuclear weapons twice and uh, tested them regularly uh, more than any other country in the world – you know, uh, countries like China, DPRK, uh, uh, Russia uh, during the Soviet period, uh, they all felt the need to have them as this deterrence. And it, it was very effective because the U.S. never launched one again, even though it did want to. It wanted to drop nuclear weapons on Korea. It wanted to drop nuclear weapons on China. Um, you know, it's threatened nuclear war many, many different times. So – um. Yes, it is a big deterrent and and, I, and that's, that is a good thing, so to speak. But at the same time, I do think it would be a mistake to also downplay what are pretty objective, especially just of late developments, where you have the United States and NATO getting closer and closer to Russia's border and leaving russia with very few options russia's military is quite strong russia's military will not lose its special military operation in ukraine it will continue to make gains if such a thing is necessary to do but also nato is playing with fire and now there is i think a, a stronger line drawn in the sand now that the literal map has changed and uh, the the problem i think with what's happening right now is that you do have sections of the ruling elite that are willing to experiment with these kind of scenarios you even have the western media corporate media talking about it openly what if they do the same thing with china what if china invades taiwan not a likely scenario what if russia uses nuclear weapons in ukraine not a likely scenario either because russia has made it very clear that that's not part of its aims or mission or anything of the sort but russia and china have the right to and will use such weapons if they feel like their territorial and national sovereignty and integrity is being challenged. And the U.S. and NATO and and all of its attendant military military institutions are experimenting with this. And that's what the new Cold War is, experimenting with a scenario of direct confrontation. So I, I think that's just the first point, is that that is a very real Um, issue. That is something that we should take very seriously. It doesn't mean that nuclear weapons are going to be exchanged, uh, but it does mean that the possibility is very much there. On the other uh, note, though, uh, you know, I'm just not in agreement that countries like Iran, China, Russia are imperialist. Um, You know, imperialism is a very specific definition in my view. Uh, imperialism is a stage of capitalism. It is where monopoly capital and finance capital dominate. And the endless wars that stem from imperialism are an outgrowth of the insatiable drive for uh, monopoly and finance capital to expand profits through the, re- the division, the redivision, and the dominance of the planet. And so I don't see Russia as having those ambitions. Uh, Russia may be a capitalist state, but it is also uh, uh, in its entirety being targeted by imperialism. There really isn't a section even of the capitalist class in Russia that the United States has any faith in to kind of drive Russia into an imperialist or even a neo-colonial direction uh, those forces do not have the kind of power that would require that, that that they would require in order to do that and so i think that's why we see forces like Vladimir Putin come to the helm where it's all about uh, developing Russia's economy its sovereignty And so if Russia were free to develop as it is, who knows, right? We don't know, but it's not. It is completely, it is more, it is more closely a a neo-colonial target of, um, and that's why Putin identifies mostly with the global South and and the neo-colonial world than, uh, 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 than the imperialists is because Russia finds itself more so in that status. And now with reference to Iran, to China, I mean, Iran conducting imperialism in Iraq. Uh, Iran and Iraq have had issues in the past. Surely the ugly war uh, between Iran and Iraq uh, was very unfortunate. It was goaded by U.S. imperialism, um, if we remember that. Uh, But at this point, there's actually something much deeper going on and that is that Iran, certain forces in Iraq, uh, Lebanon, their, Syria, there is a much more serious problem uh, and a much more serious issue at hand, which is that these countries are facing some of the most devastating conditions laid bare to them by U.S. imperialism. They have been thrown into chaos. Iran happens to be one of the few stable countries left. Uh, 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 they're also a capitalist government, for you know, there's there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, Iran, because of its particular and peculiar uh, uh, situation historically, uh, you know, the Iranian Revolution being really uh, an expression, uh, reassertion of self determination after more than twenty plus years of being under the dominion of the most vicious U.S. and British uh, imperialist puppetry. Um, you know, Iran has found it also necessary to incorporate what are both uh, nationalist, uh, even some socialist policies in order to maintain sovereignty and integrity. And so Iran's foreign policy certainly isn't expansionist. Now Iran does lend support, hezbollah, Syria, certain forces in Iraq fighting, uh, terrorist forces fighting, um, you know, uh, 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 fighting for, for a sovereign government, uh, that, that's surely true. But to call it imperialist, I don't know. I, you know, I am more so in the uh, political uh, understanding that we have kind of a resistance movement in that region uh, that has taken shape in response to the devastation that was laid there, that was literally created by endless U.S. wars, especially since the War on Terror. But this dates back well before. This dates back to the late 70s. This dates, I would say, even, even further than that with the destruction of Arab nationalism, with the destruction of any kind of nationalism, national liberation movements in that region. So, and with China, I mean, when we, you know, I, I, I'm I, just not of the school that, you know, the entire polity in China, Iran, uh, Russia are pieces of shit. I mean, uh, China is a socialist country. Uh, the Communist Party of China, I don't know, totalitarianism, authoritarianism feels just like Cold War language. So... This uh, podcast (laughs) rejects Cold War language. Um, It's not precise. It doesn't get into uh, what is a very, I think, interesting and, um, you know, much more complex phenomenon, which is the governance system in China. It doesn't get into what the Communist Party of China has done, being 90 million people strong. To uh, help all Chinese people of all ethnicities, uh, of all classes, even the national bourgeoisie, um, stand up after a century of humiliation from imperialism and then to institute a political economy of socialism that is both uh, 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 committed to socialist principles but also flexible enough to Understand When there, there has to be alterations to maintain both uh, sovereignty and to, to advance, to, to really advance the productive forces and move into a modern socialist era in a period of uh, what really is, you could say, capitalist totalitarianism, a, a, a capitalist hellscape uh, led by the United States. That is designed to devour all peoples, all nations that dare to seek autonomy and self-determination. And that dare to seek uh, out an order that meets their basic needs. So, you know, I I do have to go now. That was my bell. But um, I should return sometime soon this week. Okay. And uh, appreciate the comments. Wish I could have gotten some more. But if everything goes well, uh, tonight I will be in the Left Lens with the Durant at 9 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. So check out the Left Lens at that time. All right, everyone. Take care. Sorry for the short pod, but I will be back um, at some point soon this week. Bye-bye.